wait a minute. I've had these down moments before, not to this degree. How did I manage them then? Because here I am now. And it was all about finding my root purposes in life and what I enjoy the most and why I chose the directions I did and how those allowed me to progress and build. Hello and welcome to Grief, Gratitude and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Joseph D. Pianca. He is a board-certified practicing gastroenterologist, GI, in Portsmouth, Rhode Island. And he's been doing that for over 20 years. And now he can add to that an author to the to the list of things that he does. So welcome, Dr. Pianca. Thanks, Kendra. Thank you for, Thank for you. being Thank you for being here and for uh, sharing now your knowledge in your own journey, which has been a very vast journey in your search of health. And the book that we will be talking about, it's called It's All in Your Health, A Guide to Health, Fitness, and Rediscovering the New and Rediscovery in the New Normal. And you wrote this during the pandemic. So we're curious now as to what led you to do this. So we'll be talking about that. But first, let's start with your life. So you live right now in Rhode Island. Tell us about your family structure, please. Yeah, so actually grew up in New York, uh, trained in my main training was in Atlanta, Georgia, which was the place we were before we came to Rhode Island, thought we were going to actually live in Georgia, but uh, my wife and myself decided we wanted to be a little closer to home. So we searched for opportunities in the Northeast and Rhode Island just kind of fit everything on the punch list perfectly in terms of geography. We are winter people, so we ski, we are summer people, so we surf and, um, I ended up in an outstanding practice in a really great state. New England is just such an incredible place for medicine. I couldn't have been luckier uh, in terms of that choice in my career. Um, so that's kind of my background a little bit. I have, I've been married for 27 years to my dream girl, fortunately, as well. She took pity on me, I think, and uh, has stayed with me through thick and thin for 27 years. And we have three great kids. Um, my oldest, Caitlin, who I do mention in the book, you referenced uh, our skiing relationship, which we still look fondly back on. She started law school a few weeks ago in Boston. My son, Ryan, is a freshman in college up in Boston. 
And my baby Emily is a freshman in high school, just started a couple of weeks ago as well. And we're here in Rhode Island. They're close enough where they come home when they need to. Uh, and uh, it's, been, it's been a great, great ride in terms of practice. Wonderful. Thank you for, for sharing that. And Georgia, I actually lived in Georgia before moving here. So you mentioned Emory that in the book, right? That's actually yeah. where my brother-in-law went to medical school as well. So uh, something there in common. Who knows? You guys might have crossed paths. The, depending on the year, of course. So um, thank you for sharing that and about your your children and where you grew up. Now, let's talk about your upbringing a little bit. So you're from New York. You're an only child, correct? So correct. let us know, how is it that someone like you and your upbringing becomes a doctor? Just what led you to become a doctor? So it had everything to do with Long Island. Um, I kid around with a lot of friends back in the 70s and 80s, my daycare was essentially my dad's boat uh, on the Great South Bay on the south shore of Long Island. And from the earliest, earliest recollections I can come up with, I was fascinated by all creatures living. And my dad fished and shellfished a lot. So my exposure to biology and the environment and various ecosystems was extraordinary at a really young age. I just became mesmerized by anything living. And then as a fisherman, we dissect or fillet our catch to bring home. And my dad would still comment to this day, he just turned 90 a few weeks ago. One of his fondest memories was how long it would take me to pull my weight on the boat because I would sit staring at the intestines of fish and uh, shellfish, etc., crabs and such. So I remember in kindergarten when we sat around in a semicircle and everyone said, what do you want to be when you grew up? I said, doctor and baseball player right away in kindergarten and I never let that go. The baseball part I did, um, but the physician part I never did. And went to medical school in New York and uh, trained in New York for my residency uh, at NYU Winthrop, it's called now, NYU uh, Winthrop on Long Island. And then for my fellowship chose Georgia I thought we were going to stay on Long Island forever, but my wife uh, convinced me otherwise that we were going to explore new territories. And it's been, as I said, a great trip. So that's kind of my upbringing and where the whole physician thing started. And through my training and my career, I knew it was slam dunk the right choice for me. It's always been my passion and will be till the day I retire, if ever. <laughs> and you mentioned like looking at the intestines of the fish and all the gut, you know, gutting it. So I guess that explains then your choice of going into gastroenterology out of all the fields. Or what was it then when you were studying and in residency that you're like, oh, yes, gastroenterology, this is it. That's a story, too. I oh. think everything. <laughs> I love stories. stories. I love them. So basically, um, I was a kid of the 1980s. And if you are a Stranger Things fan, um, 1980s was about malls 
and video games, and then the earliest incarnations of these super systems our kids now have at home, right? We were playing Atari and Nintendo and all that. And myself and my friends were video game kids in the early days. So I had that hand-eye coordination and fascination through medical school, really. And believe it or not, I do. I, I think that played a big part in my choice because now, uh, all seriousness, I play the equivalent of the hand-eye coordination skills of video games in people. So I took what I was pretty good at and what I was fascinated with, integrated them, came up with this perfect solution. Plus, I loved both internal medicine and general surgery. Uh, didn't like the idea of not being able to do hands-on procedural things in medicine. Also, didn't quite like the lifestyle of general surgery. I don't think it would have allowed me to do the things I like to do as much. Uh, so gastroenterology was an integration of the two. But I like to kind of end it by saying that I proved my parents wrong when I was a kid and they said, these video games are never going to amount to anything or get you anywhere. Boy, did I show them all these years later. So here I am. I, I'm laughing as I'm muted here because I'm a mom of two teenagers, one, a 15-year-old boy, everything you were saying about the hand-eye coordination and the, and the video games, I'm sure my son will prove me wrong as well as all the time he's invested in, in all that as to how it will be effective for him as he gets uh, older and what he chooses to do. So for all of us parents listening, it gives us some hope of what it is, <laughs> the skills they're developing. Well, two things to that point. Uh, number one, there's a study that without question proves video game surgeons are superior when it comes to laparoscopic skills, number one. And for some reason, number two, residents in training in surgery do better uh, in terms of their technical skill and progress when they listen to rock and roll in the OR. I don't know who came up with that study or how they figured that out. I didn't really read it in depth, but I thought it was kind of neat. So, I wonder what it is about the music frequency or the beat in rock and roll that maybe creates that focus or drive as someone is you know, doing a procedure. I think we're going to cover that later because I touched upon some similar notes in the book. And that's whatever inspires or drives you as an individual is going to put your mind and then secondarily your body into a better place, a space that is incredibly creative. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the key to everything and why it works. So let's, let's talk about that part of creative. And we were talking about your parents. At the beginning of the book, you mentioned about these two types of parents, your parents and then the friends of your parents in the neighborhood. And that a lot of it was these friends of your parents were more of these creatives, kind of living life in the moment type of people. Uh, can you describe this scenario? Because you do mention it quite a bit also in your book as how these two types of personalities of people uh, kind of their results in life may be a little bit different or unique. Yeah, so I don't think we even have to go back to the 1970s. I bet you can go back to your last 
gathering, whether that was before or now, hopefully after this pandemic stretch where we're having gatherings again. But I am sure that you walk into a social space, so to speak, and there are certain type of people, and yes, I am going to characterize and stereotype them, but hey, how's it going? Great, how are you? I'm okay, tired, but, and then you get into those conversations that, yeah, life is just going by so fast, etc. And then you get into more conversation and it's, well, what's been going on lately? Well, you know, I, uh, we've been hanging out home a lot. We binge watched this series, etc. Well, yeah, life is going to go by pretty fast when there's not this incredible reference point and then variety added on your timeline, which is going to really change your perspective on how much you've done or accomplished in a certain point of time. But then you have those people and you know who they are. You walk into a party, they come in, everybody lights up, like the whole atmosphere changes, right? You go up to them, hey, how's it going? Yeah, we're, we're doing great. We just got back from some camping trip or we took this really odd vacation out to the Baja Peninsula of Mexico and surfed or we hiked and and those people never ever say, well, life is going by so fast or I'm tired all the time. They're already dialed in on that next trip they're going to take, what they're going to accomplish next, etc. And then you sit back and you kind of scan the room again. And even physically speaking, there's a difference between group A and group B. And I'm not just talking the aura, I mean physically. People who are more motivated to do things and tackle life complement that by being much more physically active to allow that, if that makes sense. In other words, your life is going to complement what you like to do in your life, to perpetuate it, to optimize it. And I'm a big believer in that. And I noticed that early on. I just could recognize the differences in those people. And I knew really early which of those people I wanted to be, who I looked up to. And the funny thing is, and I do mention it in the book years later, the kids of Group A are very much like the parents of Group A. And the kids of Group B are very much like the parents of Group B. And their kids are just as fun and motivated, etc. And that, you may think, is genetic. Uh, oh, they were just born that way. But I think it was much more than that. I think it was a mindset. It was this idea of people okay with getting out of their comfort zone frequently for something better. And that's kind of how I tried to live my life. And in retrospect, I continue to do that. I continue to push the envelope. And I think that's what actually got me through some of the more bluesy down moments early on, especially in this pandemic. 
that is such a perfect transition to talking about then this pandemic. You mentioned getting out of your comfort zone. Well, you got out of your comfort zone during this pandemic and wrote a book, something that was not one of the things that you thought you'd do, right? This is your first book, correct? Correct. Yes. So you got out of your comfort zone to write this book. Now, explain to us a little bit about the emotions that were going on then, right? You know, March or so 2020, when things started shutting down and you were then asked to basically go home for now because no, you know, only emergency procedures were going to be done. So explain to us that and your mindset during this time, please. So you learn a lot about yourself during challenging times in your life and when you have time to reflect. It's amazing how my life has always been such a whirlwind because of my career and all that's involved in it that even when I was going through things, I didn't always recognize or put together what I was going through. And I realized after the fact that I have always been prone to ups and downs, uh, but not to the degree that I experienced early on in the pandemic. It's almost as if there was this little buildup periodically that was going on. And then in the early days of the pandemic, I really swung pretty low. I was in a down moment. And what happened for me was I hit this point almost like doing a puzzle. My whole life has been about putting this puzzle together and getting the pieces to fit. And then suddenly early on in the pandemic, I was not only not interested in doing the puzzle anymore, but the pieces in front of me didn't quite make sense. I couldn't fit them. It was almost as if I was at a point where I was incapable of continuing my life puzzle and couldn't figure it out until I reflected back saying, wait a minute, I've had these down moments before, not to this degree. How did I manage them then? Because here I am now. And it was all about finding my root purposes in life and what I enjoy the most and why I chose the directions I did and how those allowed me to progress and build. It's almost like the principle of fitness. You've got to break down muscle to build it up stronger. And somehow that stuff started to come together in my head but I still couldn't climb out of my slump early on when I was told, hey, everything you were ever meant to do since those early days on the boat in kindergarten, that's on hold. And those people who need you to do urgent procedures, et cetera, you can't because there's this other unforeseen pandemic going on. And I remember one of my patients who I've known my whole career saying, but I need you right now. What do you mean you can't take care of me? And the curtain just came down and everything started to go a little dark. So along that line of thought, my salvation and my answers came with this little pamphlet or manual that was sitting on my kitchen table that I originally intended to be just a handout to my patients to give them some helpful tips on 
nutrition and fitness. Because in 15 minutes that I'm allowed to see my patients before I have to move on, I can't do all that. But if I could give them something to take with them, then they can ask me questions either uh, by email or at our next visit, etc. But one of those things in life, right, that I put to the side and I'll get to it when I get to it, life's going by so fast. Well, now life not only slowed down, but it froze in its tracks. And as the rain was hitting the windows and everything was sort of really gloomy, I looked over and there it was. And I said, you know what? Nothing to lose. Um, I'm going to pick this pamphlet up and I started typing. And an extraordinary thing happened for me. I didn't necessarily at first come up with answers for those I was trying to provide them to, but I started by providing some of my own answers. As I was typing, some insights came to my head about how great my life has been to this point, how this setback was maybe a bit greater magnitude and the whole world was involved. But there was going to come a point where we were going to come through this. And maybe my experiences could absolutely be conducive to my original purpose. And that was helping other people out, learning from it, and then providing a bit of light for everyone else. So I just kept typing through the night, and through the tears, and through the heartache. And then another amazing thing happened. And that was that I looked up out the window. Not only had the rain stopped. But there was a light on the horizon. The sun was coming up. And that was real symbolic to me. The sun came up that day. It was going to come up every day. And I was going to be there for that. And I was just going to go all out. And I was going to send the message and help out as many people as I could. And that's where this book evolved. Thank you so much. And I did like how you said metaphorically and realistically that that sun came out after this gloomy day, the contrast of the emotions of feeling how you did, then seeing the sun come out after you've been writing all night and creating this really, really insightful and helpful book for anybody that is looking to shift their life and their health. So again, it's a guide to health, fitness, rediscovery in the new normal. And it's, it, that's the subtitle, It's All in Your Head. Now let's go over that title of It's All in Your Head. What made you choose that? And you're very thorough, of course, with all the different things and explorations of your own life. But I'm curious right now as to why you chose that title. So I didn't want the title to necessarily um, be so strong that it said, hey, stop, you're crying and belly aching. You're just kind of imagining it. Um, if you just think positive, everything will work itself out. Not quite like that, but in my case, in my situation, what I meant by it was all in my head is that there were keys or clues or answers to my own path and discovery and perhaps even salvation, if I really think back to those moments, that they are locked away somewhere in the attics of my mind to try and rip off a Grateful Dead lyric a little bit. They were locked away up there, and I had to find them. All right, our 
ancestors, our predecessors, the great artists over time, musicians, uh, philosophers, and writers have all tried to give us little clues in their work in terms of finding our way. And I consume sort of that stuff on a large scale, and I know it's all tucked in there. And then I have my own life experiences as well. So it's all in your head is more meant to say, hey, the answers may be closer than we think they are. They may be a little simpler than the complexity that we've made things. And if we search for them and get some guidance from some friends, some family, some people who love us, our providers, etc., maybe we can find those answers. And that's kind of where I was going with that, rather than a harsher, hey, snap out of it kind of thing, if that makes sense. Makes perfect sense. And especially when you read the book, you realize that it does make sense. You mentioned puzzle earlier, that it was part of this puzzle that you kind of put together. And in this, you did put a puzzle together, all these different kind of aha moments that kind of built up to what it is you believe about fitness and nutrition now. And the story of your own life growing up, how different things and distractions and meeting girls and this kind of started shifting your focus of food. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how it is that food has become this way in which maybe we do use more than than for nourishment, that we use it maybe for an addiction to numb. Can we go into that? And without, I know, I don't want to give out too much of your book itself because it is a lot there, but, but if you don't mind sharing that part, that would be great. Kendra, I've got nothing to hide, so say what you will, number one. Uh, I, I love the way you interview. Uh, number two is food very much uh, over the last several decades has become part of what I mentioned before, part of our comfort zone. It has become of our, part of our social structure, um, how we relate to other people, um, what we do when we're feeling bad, what we do when we're feeling good. We've become much more interested in all things food. Uh, it has now become more and more acceptable to do food challenges, what used to be in the olden days called gluttony, essentially. And I am not telling anyone to go out there and starve yourself and be miserable with nothing but celery sticks and water. Uh, what I am saying is we need to understand, all right, that first and foremost, if you're comfortable with your life and where things stand and you're feeling healthy and you're good to go, then listen no further. But if you're someone like many of my patients who are uh, experiencing health-related consequences due to their weight, they're just not happy with where things stand. They don't feel healthy. They're not able to do or optimize the things they really want to do. And they have these concerns that that is going to negative Im negatively impact their health going forward and their timeline, so to speak. 
Because those same people who say life is so short, well, if you're unhealthy and you're shortening it on the other end as well, guess what? Life is going to go by fast because it's shorter. Um, so I think what I tried to do is to start this conversation that, hey, whatever your arguments are in terms of ideal weight, etc., we have to bring back this conversation that we're going in the wrong direction statistically speaking, uh, as a society, in terms of our body weights, our activity levels, our fitness levels, etc. And maybe part of that is that we're no longer just using food as nourishment and moving on to other things and activities. Maybe it's become much more than that in our lives, keeping us in our comfort zone. We're going to it more out of habit than out of necessity. We are now no longer having the same thresholds in terms of how much we need to eat uh, to be satisfied. Bigger has become better. And we supplement that with high calorie drinks and beverages. We've lost our accountability for some reason to ourselves but in that same note, because this is part of other people's comfort zones as well, they are enabling it and reinforcing the behavior because if you're part of someone's comfort zone, they don't want you to leave their comfort zone. They're comfortable with you in it. So as you notice, groups of people tend to all support each other's comfortable behaviors. Um, and the person who maybe questions that and makes some positive changes that mess with someone else's comfort zone, they're almost made to feel as if, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing this? You don't need to do this or that. So we're getting into these negative feedback loops that I think are quite dangerous. But the interesting thing over the last several months of research and data I've been reading is there are a lot of advocacy groups in medicine now saying, hey, we're being too harsh on people that are above ideal body weight and we're actually becoming discriminatory against them. And we should back off and understand that there's a genetic and a metabolism role in all this. Well, I got to be honest with you. Uh, I take everybody's point of view very seriously, but I don't want to cop out on my patients that I think are uh, experiencing negative effects from this. I am very much their advocate and I don't discriminate against them. I want them healthy. That's my job as their provider. That's why I was called, I think, to this life to protect people. And I don't like the trends that I see that are going on. And I think we need to talk about how we're going to fix them going forward. It is, uh, it is so true because we see the different trends of, of course, body self-love and body appreciation in contrast with, of course, still a lot of different things that are happening with, that continue to happen with body dysmorphia that occurs and the different eating disorders. But you mentioned an eating disorder, uh, if you don't mind 
uh, on onorex on which one the what ortho orthorexia, orthorexia which is the one which I feel like I was at some point probably a little so consumed when I changed my lifestyle so much into the part of looking at labels is this nutrition or not can you explain the definition of that because it's uh, there's so many contrasting ways in which we view nutrition and it's very easy to go to an extreme in any of these chapters of life correct and remember there's psychology involved with all of this and if we don't appreciate the individual and the psychology involved and that's why i'm so so big on before doing any of this start with some realistic goals and start by understanding yourself and why you do the things that you do uh, if you don't start there and it's just a number on a scale or a size dress at a wedding or looking good for a few months or a few weeks on vacation in the Caribbean, you're going to more than likely not succeed long-term. But the simple way of describing that disorder uh, that you mentioned, which is of course the opposite of the people who completely uh, disregard any uh, uh, behaviors and modifications and say, I'm just gonna live my life and not be one of those people miserable on diets all the time. Um, it's taking things too far. And I think that's the name of the chapter where orthorexia was mentioned. And that does tie into psychology a bit. People who go down that road tend to be type A personalities, perfectionists. They want to always do more and more and more. And it might just simply be an overcompensation. Uh, for maybe some other choices earlier on. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a psychologist by any means, but I do a lot of psychology on the side as a gastroenterologist. Um, but I think what we need to be careful about is to stick to the basics of accountability and science and understand ourselves better and stop looking for hacks and pushing things too far to extremes because then you will be miserable. Uh, number one is if you take the enjoyment out of anything completely and you don't have a built-in reward system, then what's the use? You become that robot I mentioned uh, in the beer commercial that simply works out all the time and can't go into a bar and have some fun with their friends. But on the flip side, we have to have that balance struck where we understand our own metabolisms, our bodies, our goals, be accountable to ourselves, continue to sustain those goals, and careful of the extreme swings in either direction, which is where we fail. So I think keeping things a bit more straightforward and simple sometimes is the best. I mean, everybody has a revolutionary program, right? If you do this program in 30 days, you're going to look like this supermodel or this fitness guru. That's just not true. All of this stuff is a lifetime uh, in the works and should be.
it is your life. So it should be a lifetime of continuing to work hard and get it right. Thank you for explaining that. And that part of a lifetime that really is so true and fitting because it has to do with choosing lifestyle, a lifestyle that works. And you mentioned about the part of knowing that you're setting a realistic goal, not like saying, oh, I'm going to start working out seven days a week when you had never worked out at all. Set up realistic goals, build up on that, build up on that in order to create a lasting and a healthy life in, in, for you. Now, let, let's talk about stress because stress is something that can come up a lot, even when we're changing our, our lifestyle, as we're thinking, oh my gosh, did I eat this too much? Did I do this much? Did I work out enough? Did I not? How does stress in our life affect our health and hence even our weight and, and, and such? So kind of looking back to a couple of questions ago, stress is going to impact everything we do how we behave, and the choices we make. And we all know it, and we've seen it very pronounced in the last couple of years. Hey, it's a tough world out there. And it's not getting any easier, is it? The variables are just so much more numerous, and it always seems that things are so dramatized on social media, and television, etc., that the stakes always seem to be higher. And we always need to be reaching for these very unrealistic goals that other people are defining for us as perfection. But maybe the answer isn't looking like a 20-something that lives in the gym uh, seven days a week. And I don't know how they pay for it. Uh, maybe they're just so successful that that's their employment. But most of us aren't those kids in the gym. You throw a family in on that and you throw other interests and other people's interests and you need to be a bit more selfless. Wow, that's a really tough thing to juggle all of those things. So I think some of the stress are self-imposed when, as you mentioned, someone starts out, you know, this vision of changing their life. Well, why does it necessarily have to be that level of perfection? Maybe there's some more realistic individual goal that you want to start out with. And if you go, if you achieve that and go beyond it, that's great. That's the golden goose right there to continue to jump from goal to goal. But that imposes a stress in and of itself in terms of trying to achieve something that is too excessive, and that leads to what you asked before, taking it too far. The other part of this too is remember, we love to medicate when we're stressed, when we're depressed, when we're not feeling well. It could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be any vice you name, but it can also be calories. And just like any of those other things, we do develop psychological and metabolic addictions to calories. We get a high off of our sugar rushes and we do not like our crashes. Um, 
So that's another part of the stress component, how it plays in. If we're medicating our stressful week by unwinding on the couch with a couple of glasses of wine, a really rich dinner, hey, that's wonderful now and then, right? Like once a week, treat yourself. That's great. Be accountable to that. Don't be excessive with it, but treat yourself. But when it comes to, okay, Monday night, we've got this meeting and we're going out to dinner with the people at work for a business dinner and you do it then. And then Tuesday is some, somebody's birthday party. All right, we're going to go out for that. And then Wednesday is some happy hour. We're getting together with these folks and doing it then. And then the weekend are two different barbecues in the summer or in the winter. You go skiing and then you're in the lodge all day drinking whoa, 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 wait a minute. You know, you're unwinding an awful lot. And is that on the back end actually helping your stress? Or is it going to compound it if you're not hitting your goals or your health becomes compromised from that? So stress is part of everything. There's no question about it. It could be one of the roots of all evil. But the world's not going to get easier. Uh, and we're not going to be able to control all of the variables around us. But the one thing we are in control of is our view on these things and our own behaviors. And as I said, our accountability to ourselves. And I think that's the key to all of this. You summed it up beautifully. Thank you so much. And it is um, a great way to see it about that part of, is it compounding? And are all these things we're doing for leisure, maybe on the long term, actually creating more possibilities for more stress? I heard something one time that either we, any choice or anything we do, we're either investing in our future or taking away from it. So in some of these things that we may think are helping us and the long term might be taking some years out of our life. It's kind of like you're putting into the bank or it's a taking out money out of the bank. So how you describe that uh, reminded me of that. In, in the part of uh, comfort zone and also getting out of that comfort zone, as well as trying to fit exercise into your lifestyle, because a lot of times that is one of the things we say, we don't have time, we're working this time, where do you fit it in with all these things? So you mentioned a program that worked for you with how you started kind of to get really into was Tony, Tony Horton's uh, P90X back in the day. Um, and then just, you know, kind of going through that first week of hardship and then kind of crossing that threshold of pain to then make it to week two and completing 90 days. But how did you fit? that into your lifestyle and the choice of fitting into your lifestyle come about? So it initially, I can almost oversimplify the story, but there's more to it than that. I have to thank my mother-in-law, June, who at a down moment way back when, when I wasn't at the fitness level I wanted, gave me this book. Um, and in that book, um, and it was called Don't sweat the small stuff and it's all small stuff really there was one memorable chapter or paragraph that said hey why not set your alarm clock an hour earlier than you would have normally 
And I was always of the mindset that, no, I need that extra hour of sleep. I was up late. I was doing this and that. And I would be miserable all day. And I took a gamble and rolled the dice. And that was one of the toughest gambles I ever took in terms of getting out of my comfort zone. But I gambled that that extra hour was my time that wouldn't impact anyone else's time negatively, particularly my family. It would not get in the way of my job uh, more often than not, because that is, believe it or not, the, not the witching hour for when the emergency room calls. Um, and somehow I was going to compensate for that lost hour by maybe trying to sneak to bed early instead of watching news reports that I've already seen three times. I didn't need to see the rerun again. Um, and maybe I would feel so much darn better that my quality of sleep would be better in the time I was able to sleep. And that was one of Arnold Schwarzenegger's comments at uh, his speech that broke the internet. He said, sleep faster. And I didn't know what he meant at first. And I was like, that's crazy. But for me, I translated in that into more quality of sleep is absolutely more beneficial than a night tossing, turning. And believe it or not, things like alcohol or overeating, overindulgence, they mess with your sleep. You don't get the same quality. So I kind of cleaned up my diet at the same time. And that hour transformed my entire existence. And then I built upon that hour once I realized that that was incredibly successful. I then worked out how to surf during my call weekends if I went at first light and had my pager available. I could still do that in the morning and then go to work. And I could also bring my surf gear with me to work that if I got out early and it was a favorable swell, I could then surf in the evenings, especially in the warmer months when the daylight is longer. And it just kept adding. I kept not only finding this time, it was always there. I just didn't appreciate I could do something with it that as opposed to the people at the party that said life is going by so fast, I pulled a string and stretched mine out because I filled the time that I had with more of the things I wanted to do that are going to do two things, fill up my life to make it seem longer, but also prolong my life so it will be longer. And that's, that's been the whole entire key to everything I've ever done to approach this space. It's, you're definitely investing a lot on the front end for your life quality as well, not the quality of life, just like you mentioned, the quality of sleep, same here, your quality of life, as well as your quantity will be different based on the choices that you're making. I want to tie in this into the part of how exercise helps a lot of people that listen to this uh, podcast or in probably in the midst of grief. Can we talk about the effects that exercise have on our mindset and our emotions, please? So for me, it has been transformative and magical. I don't know if that is true for everybody. 
But I will tell you, there are many studies to support that when we are in better physical condition and shape and fitness levels, there is incredible psychologic benefit. I don't have to go to studies. I can tell you very candidly uh, and uh, very truthfully that that has been the case for me. I can't tell you how many mornings I get up to work out. I've had a rough night of call. I take uh, the chance anyway that I'm going to work my way out, out of feeling crummy that morning, proceed with my workout, and I'm lifted up. And I have a much better day than if I didn't work out. So there's that part of it. But I think another understated part of it is that whole concept of having a goal that you reach. If you start with a goal and you slowly get there, that is so self-inspirational. And I'm huge on this concept of self-inspiration. As I said, I don't need the 20-year-olds to tell me how to be inspired. I inspire myself because I've been around a while and I've seen a lot of things. But you hit that goal and all of a sudden, wow, I did that. And I found the time, I made the time, and I made these changes, and I feel way better, and I look way better. And someone commented to me how much better I look. And it's not just physical. There's something about your aura mentally uh, that makes you just seem like one of those group Bs at my parents' party, right? And that just carries to the next step. Well, if that was so great, Rather than using food as my sort of drug of choice, why can't I use fitness and wellness and nutrition as my drug of choice to give me the next hop? And that's where that ladder came up that I just kept pushing it and pushing it. And positive things beget positive things, right? So the more fit I got, the better I surfed or snowboarded. And then that inspired me to want to work out more so I could maintain that level and so on and so forth. So it's just been one big positive feedback loop that's been a blast. It has. And you mentioned a lot how it also affected even just your interactions and your family. You were more present, happier, probably happier at work, happier because you had already started your day with something that you were doing for yourself and for your health it, and all the chemicals that I'm not in, all the chemicals that are released in the body also create these happy, happy hormones, you know, that happened, right? So that also created a ripple effect in your social life. And I think I am better at what I do now. Um, when you're physically feeling good, when you're mentally feeling good, not only are you more, um, efficient and skilled at whatever it is you do, but you're more creative too. These idea flows and streams, which mainly come to me while I'm working out. First thing when I get up and while I'm working out is when I get most of my creative ideas and energy. And that creative energy carries me to be inspired to do the things that I do. And it, as I said, I hate to keep beating this concept to death, but it's this positive feedback loop. We all have the capability of finding and using 
that will just self-inspire us to whatever goals we want to hit. And I encourage that tremendously. Thank you. And it's even just with the title of your book being It's All in Your Head, finding in yourself and in your own little file cabinet of your life, all these different other moments that give yourself proof and inspiration of things you've been able to accomplish and do and use those as launching pad and inspiration for yourself in the present as well. So for every person listening to this, each and every one of you are extraordinary. And if someone as simple as me can find this type of success, just think about what someone as extraordinary as you can do. You can blow me away, and that's great. I'll be here cheering for you every step of the way. Um, but I, I really believe in this concept that every single person has lived an extraordinary life. It took a pandemic for me to recognize how extraordinary mine has been. But now that I've found it, there's no turning back. What a beautiful way to wrap this, this episode and conversation with those beautiful words that actually got me even teary-eyed. And it's true, we are extraordinary beings and all of us so unique. And what we all bring to the table and our experiences is unique. And let's just use that to make our lives better and hence the lives of others better as well and the world. So thank you once again, Dr. Pianca. And again, this was Joseph D. Pianca with the book, It's All in Your Head. And please tell us how we can find it and where we can buy it or find you. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and I am mainly on Instagram and TikTok and uh, the publisher's page. And uh, Kendra, you have been a blast. You absolutely made my day. You're just great. So thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate you so much. And I feel like I already know you since I finished you to reading your book this morning before this interview. And I really highly recommend for anybody that's been struggling or even just wanting how to kind of up their game in the uh, fitness world or health world, read this book. I know that I'm in kind of those moments of my life. So I, I kind of earmarked the parts of my BMR and all these kind of things to kind of take a look at uh, those parts of my life and kind of see where I can tweak things that I'm already doing to kind of just enhance the quality of my life. So thank you once again, Dr. Pianca. Thank you, and you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.